Second Samuel chapter 5, some verses, and here's what they sound like. Verse 1, it starts, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and they said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. And in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And king David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah, seven years and six months. At Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah, 33 years. And the king and his men went out, uh, went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And verse 9 says, And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward and David became greater and greater for the Lord the God of hosts was with him and may God bless this word what it means and how it applies to us it's those last words of course there in verse 10 that get our focus today because it's another descriptive name in this series we're doing, looking at all these different names, each telling us something about God. God is a person. God has attributes or things about God. We ought to know what those things are. Every time we see a name in a passage, it's telling us something else that we ought to know. So here it is. And the question to consider really in thinking about this name is um, just sort of work the soil a little bit and ask you this question. What is an army for? And why would one be needed? And hold that thought. I want to look at the name that appears in this passage as it appears originally, which means it's Hebrew time. Yahweh Tzabaoth. There's that letter again that we saw last week with Sid Kenu, the TS letter. Tzabaoth. Sometimes you see it as Sevayat, the V and the B, you know, this is the way Hebrew works. Sometimes you just see it with the S as Sabaoth, like it starts with an S. I told you how when I was a kid, the first time I heard that, people referring to maybe in a text or in the hymn, Luther's hymn, whatever, Lord Sabaoth, I thought there must be an alternate spelling for Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And sometimes it's spelled with an O. I don't know. I didn't get it. I didn't know what they meant. And then I was also confused sometimes when I would hear hosts in the English Bible. Now this this particular verse has it the Lord, the God of hosts. It says Yahweh Elohate Sabaoth, Yahweh God of hosts. Now, what is a host? What in the world is a host? So when I was a kid, I wondered that. So let's just go to the dictionary, shall we? Let's consider a few things that a host might be. 
There it is. Host. Noun. It can be a verb, too, of course. So, definition number one. One who receives or entertains guests. Right? As in, you've been a wonderful host tonight. Or hostess. You know, depending. So, one who receives or entertains guests. Number two. A master of ceremonies. Moderator. Or interviewer. So you host the thing. You're the one, you know, you get up there on the microphone, welcome everybody, and do the whole thing. Like you host a, maybe a game show or something. Zoom. Game, what's that? A Zoom host. Or, or you can, <laughs> the, now there's an updated definition of host. See, now you go back, you know, what, 10, 15 years, people be like, well, what do you mean, what are you talking about? Host. Yeah, host used to be famous. When, when we were, there was a time when, I was thinking one day about this. Game shows, certain game shows, If you, the hosts of some game shows were as famous and recognizable as any people anywhere. Bob Barker. Bob Barker. Didn't I already make my Bob Barker joke about this microphone? But everyone would have known who uh, you know Bob Barker was. Because, I mean, we had three channels, for crying out loud, and so everybody saw, and this show was on every single day. And there he was, even said his name every day, or they would introduce him, now here's your host, you know. And so those guys were famous. You know, I was reading something um, interesting about the history of uh, Wheel of Fortune. Talk about long-running shows. I mean, like, ever since I can remember, when I was a toddler, I think that show was on... TV and and you know the original host of Wheel of Fortune was Chuck Woolery. Yep. Now you guys remember Chuck Woolery? Um, he used to host that dating type show. It was called Love Connection. Remember that in the 80s? And they'd come on. Speaking of Valentine's Day, very awkward show because they would watch three really bad clips of people. They always pick. I always thought these people walking into this, they probably interview them for an hour, pick out the most awkward part of the clip to show like, you know, 30 seconds of them talking. And this poor person had to choose one of those three people to go on a paid date, you know, based on what they saw in the clip. And the audience would vote. This show was ahead of its time, really. And the audience would vote. And then they'd go on the date with the person they chose. And they would come back and they'd talk to Chuck about how the date went and every awkward detail. And sometimes they went south. And that was very entertaining to listen to how the people didn't like each other and how it all went bad. But then at the end they would just say, would you like to go on another date? And sometimes they'd be like, no thanks. And then sometimes it was a real love connection, uh, and it worked. By the way, I, I, one time I saw Chuck Woolery, I was walking out of an airport, and he was walking into the airport, you know, and like through that breezeway with the both doors open, and I was on my, kind of in a hurry, and he's kind of had his bag in a hurry, but I immediately recognized him because, again, I've seen this guy a million times, and I, and I didn't have to think, now, what's his name? Because he said his name every single time you watch the show. I'm Chuck Woolery. So I knew that's this guy's name. So you know what I said? As we walked through the breezeway, I just barely glanced at him and I said, hey, Chuck. It's like that. <laughs> and he said, hey, how you doing? By the way, you'd be interested to know maybe when I, was research, when I, when I researched this about how he was that original host back then. I mean, he hosted that like, uh, he hosted like five, six years, and then he had a labor dispute, a salary dispute, and he quit. Probably thought, this show isn't going anywhere. And then they hired Pat Sajak around 1981. And the rest is history. 
Probably should have accepted the salary they offered. That would have been job security. Uh, but you know, old Chuck Woolery, they say now is uh, hosts some kind of really very popular podcast of some kind, a YouTube channel, and he he's a very openly identifies as Christian and and uh, and is a Second Amendment enthusiast. You might want to know. So now, um, all of that has absolutely nothing to do with our message today, but. Uh, I don't know, for some of you strange type people, that's all you're going to remember today, I'm sad to say. But that's one definition. Uh, the third definition is a location, like a venue, right? So back when I lived in Salt Lake City, they said, We're, this city is going to be the host of the Winter Games. That was 20 long years ago, I can't believe it. And it was the host, and there we were right in the middle of it, and it was a pretty cool time. Way better Olympics than this one they're putting on now because uh well i mean for one thing you know in the background of our ski jump were scenic beautiful wasatch mountains as opposed to those uh those con those old concrete uh what are they like uh silos for a nuclear plant big old smoke stacks looks like where the uh springfield isotopes would play or something uh, in the background and, oh, and also Salt Lake didn't have any uh, concentration camps. But let's move on. <laughs> Number four, another uh, meaning of this is the biological carrier of a website. This is the kind of host you do not. You, what's that? You said website. Oh, what did I say? A website? Well, you can. Okay, definition number seven, web hosting. You can. We have a web hosting site. Which, 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 by the way, uh, we let expire accidentally last week, and I noticed that none of our emails were working, and our website wasn't up, and I thought, those oh, that lousy hosting service they're letting us down? I'm going to call them and give them a piece of my mind. I didn't call them. I did a chat with them. But, but always remember not to come out of the gate rude and mad. So, so I thought, I don't want to be what the kids call a Karen. No offense, Karen. That's what the kids say. And so... I didn't want to be like that, so I just thought, you know, you always go in nice. You always go, because you don't know. So I was like, gee, you know, I noticed, and I was like, and the guy, and sure enough, the guy's like, yeah, well, you guys didn't pay. And then I thought, well, that's, why did you just cut us off? But then later when I went to our other church email, I realized, oops, they sent us a few emails. And we, uh, this sort of slipped through the cracks. So anyway... We got that we got that up and running. So there's there's that host and uh, I, I hosted a virus uh, in the biological sense. Did you the last couple of years hosted a particular variant? But ordinarily you don't want to be that kind. There's also this kind number five, the consecrated wafer used in the Catholic Eucharist. Some of you know this, don't you? Anyone ever gone to mass and done the well, yeah? So they call that the, the Roman Catholics will use this paper thin little wafer and and they call that the host. It's got these all have this etymological reasons, okay? The word for all that. But that's what they will say. It's the host. And sometimes, in some places, the priest like lays it on you. Open up and lays it on your tongue, uh, which that's not COVID friendly anymore. But that's what they do. The host. All of these. Now, you, as you well know, none of these are our meaning. None of these are our meaning. Even though, as a kid, I confess I was confused. And for all I knew, one of these other things it might have meant one of these. Imagine my theological confusion thinking, the Lord, he's the God of people who welcome people to their homes. Or, I mean, you know, I wouldn't have known. 
But this last definition here, that's ours right there. A host in English, in English, a great multitude and especially military style. A large, vast army. That's what we mean by a host. That is why some English Bibles will actually say, when they translate Yahweh Tzabaoth, it'll say, the Lord of armies. The Lord of armies instead of host, because host is a bit of an outdated word in English, and a lot of people today might read it. First-time Bible readers really need some help with that one, right? Uh, People would wonder maybe what it means. But this is what it means, and this is why some Bibles do that. But now, wait, wait, wait just a minute here. Wait just a minute here. God, as we know, is the God of peace, not war. He is Yahweh Shalom. How can Yahweh Shalom also be Yahweh Tzabaoth? How can this be? As we said, armies, I asked you, what are armies for? They're not for looks. They're not for looks. Right now, as you keep if you keep up with the news, you know that a certain army is being amassed at a certain border in our world. Not for decorations. I mean, in other words, they're not planning a, a big parade. Armies have a purpose. They're not construction teams. They have a purpose. Armies are comprised of warriors. They're not accountants. They're not therapists. They're trained for something. Among, other, among certain things they're trained for, there's no way around it. It's to kill. So this could cause us some problems. So how do we make sense of this? Well, first of all, let's understand something. That some qualities, some virtues that people should have, that we, that we uphold, that we... We speak well of, and we, we say, I want to have that. I, want, I think we should strive for that. Some of those virtues would not exist, or at least would not be exercised. It wouldn't make sense what they, what they are in a perfect world. Now, think about this. Mercy. Is mercy a good thing? Yes. I mean, we're depending on mercy. Mercy we see as good, but mercy means that someone deserved to be punished. Otherwise, what does mercy even mean? How would I have a category for it in a world in which no one does anything that's worthy of penalty? Mercy wouldn't even make sense. What about forgiveness? We think forgiveness is a really good thing, do we not? But forgiveness means somebody was wronged. I mean, you never have the chance to forgive anybody if no one ever did anything wrong to you. You wouldn't even have the opportunity to exercise that. In a perfect world, you would say, I really think forgiveness is important. And they would say, what's that? Compassion means somebody is suffering. Even You hear it in the word, passion, which means suffering, really. You suffer with them. Co-compassion. But it is the notion of compassion, which we all consider good, is dependent. People today talk about empathy, built from the same word. 
Well, what about endurance? Is endurance good? Yes, endurance we love. We think we should have endurance. But endurance requires hardship, right? Endurance means there are difficult circumstances. Otherwise, what is it that you're actually doing? You're enduring something, aren't you? And for that matter, what about courage? Courage means there is something to fear. In a perfect world, there's nothing to fear. There's no need for courage because there's nothing even scary. You wouldn't even have to have it. Now, why do I say all this? Because the need then for God to have armies, that need is because there are battles that have to be won. And the reason there are battles that have to be won is that there is evil. Because evil truly does exist. It's very, very real. Evil is personified. It's older than we are. It predates the world. And so when we, when we come into the Bible, it's, very, it's, it's the most realistic book. It looks at the world for what it is. And, and therefore, it sees in the world evil at work, evil on the march. And that requires a fight. Because evil can't just be talked down or bribed. You can't just speak nicely to the devil and say, please, just, could you just, could you just please be a swell guy for me and, and not, not try to tempt me and ruin my life and destroy me and, you know, all that steal, kill, destroy stuff? Ah, oh, geez, could you, just, could you just be a pal and not do any of that? The enemy doesn't respond to negotiation like that. He has to be fought. And so this name, the name Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of armies, is used a lot of times by lots of different writers throughout the Bible. You know that passage we probably all know pretty well, Isaiah chapter 6, very well-known passage, the calling of Isaiah, where it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You're familiar with it. High lifted up on his tr- on his throne, the, his his train, the robe, you know, it just filled the whole temple, smoke, all that, the six, the creatures with the wings and all that, and they called to one another. It says, and they said, "Holy, holy, holy." They were singing hymn number whatever it is in our book. It was number one when I was growing up. Holy, holy, holy is, and and then that next name. Yeah, you know what it is. Why would I be bringing it up? Those creatures are saying, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Tzabaoth. It's interesting. The NIV says, is the Lord God Almighty. I think, they, I think that's a mistake by the NIV, if I may be so humble. I mean, why do they do that? That's not, that's not what that says in Hebrew. It's the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, it says, is filled with his glory. These are the armies of God. And, and so what kind of armies are we talking about? They're not, they're not of this world. God is not marshalling human armies. Now, that's a different discussion. Israel, Israel had armies, so those were human armies, right? I mean, there was physical, literal fighting that Israel did with actual human warriors. I mean, we know that. The passage here about David and the greatness of David and how he became greater and greater... Well, David was a warrior. David was a fighter. 
And he was also a poet and a musician and a ladies' man and all that kind of stuff, too. David had it all. <laughs> but he but he could fight, remember? Saul has slain his thousands. Mm-hmm. But David, I mean, David has kicked a whole lot of that Canaanite rear end and taken a lot of names. That's I mean, that's who he was. He achieved his greatness, but but not but not just on his own power. How was he such a great fighter? Well, I don't know. How did he how did he take down the ten ten foot man? How did he pull that off? How did he do that? Well, even as a young scrawny guy, David made it very clear that he was there on behalf of. He said, "I come to you, big guy." In the name of Yes, he that, that's how David lived and therefore it as it said in our passage he became greater and greater because the Lord of the armies was with him. The Lord of those unseen armies was with him. And that allowed his physical armies to be successful. Israel was a nation in a hostile world. But even Israel, when their armies went out and fought, they had the help of supernatural forces. How else do you expect... How else do you explain those walls that fell down? It wasn't because they had superior technology to bring down walls. Later on in history, the Romans were pretty good at war, and they came up with bigger and better technology to assail walls and not take them down. I mean, it still took a while. They had to lay long siege, you know, to take them down. Israel didn't have the ability to go in there just in their own power and, to, and knock Jericho's walls down, at least not very quickly. But they had help because the God of armies, not just their army, I mean like bigger and better armies. God's armies are angel armies, right? There's a well-known song today we'll actually introduce at the end here and maybe work it in to the rotation. God's armies are supernatural. Now, as a modern-day Christian, here we all said, we should not make the mistake, be easy to make it, of thinking that there's just no more of that. That's all Old Testament stuff. There's no more of this warfare. We don't need, we don't need the Lord of armies anymore. That's, that's Old Testament stuff. And we live in the, in the age of the peace, peaceful and loving kingdom of Christ. But there's... Problem with that is there's a whole lot of war language in those New Testament books too. And we really can't miss it. The very peaceful uh, the the man himself, the peacemaker. Yes, even Jesus said, remember Peter's confession? And he said, in response, upon this rock, and he said, flesh and blood have not Revealed this to you, Peter. And upon that rock, I'm going to build my church. And you know what he said next? And the gates of Hades will not stand against it. You know, gates are like walls. They're not offensive weapons. Walls have never advanced out to take out an opposing army. And gates have never, you know, it's not like, man, we, we might have won, but... Those gates came at us. Couldn't handle the, couldn't handle those gates. They just took us out. Just 
No gates are defensive. Jesus is saying, upon that firm, solid foundation, that confession, I will build my church, and the very foundation of my church will be an assault, will be a siege on the kingdom of darkness, and will win. Because that kingdom, kingdom of Hades, death, hell, evil, all that, my kingdom stands as an assault on that, as a siege on that. And, and, it'll, and, and, and those gates might hold a while, but ultimately they can't prevail. That's war language. Paul does not tell Timothy, Timothy, play the good game. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Right? Get out. Isn't it? Go, go play a good game. Good game today, guys. Good game. Come on. Good game, Timothy. Go out there. Play well. Play hard. It's not a game. It's a fight. It's a war. Later he tells him that in 1 Timothy, same letter, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now what that tells me is that there is a warfare that's good. Ah, this may challenge some people. War is always bad. Every, that, but that's the same as saying every fight is bad. But every fight isn't bad. And there is a just war. There is a righteous war. We're, we were just told that. That verse says so. There is a good war. Now there's, there's all kinds of bad warfare to wage. There's all kinds of wrong fighting. But there is a good kind. See, it all depends on who is being fought and for what reason. So there's a good warfare. In his second letter to Timothy, he says to him, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So now he's calling him a soldier. Yes, you're a pastor. You're a shepherd. Yes, you obey the great commission. Yes, you will follow the the great commandments and all this. But Timothy, you know, you're also a soldier. Because don't forget, there is a war on. There's still a war on to the Ephesians, he says, and Chapter 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You know this, right? He goes through sort of symbolically all of these different pieces of armor. So now you're now you're dressed for war, armored up, right? You're dressing for a battle, Right? As a red-headed uh, guy, in, or whoever, whichever character it was in Braveheart said, we didn't get all dressed up for nothing. You don't put on, one does not put on armor lest he be going to a fight. It's not, you know, he's not putting on armor to model it, you know. He, he's not going to one of those renaissance fairs that those, uh, and, and you know, I mean, probably it's a bad rap, but some people stereotype those guys as dorks of different kinds. And that's not fair to do. But, you know, he's not saying, that's not what's going on here. Right? We're not dressing up in, in the gear to look cool for our friends. He's saying, you put this on because you need this. He's saying it the way you would say it to somebody. It's like, it's like you might say to a, to a, to a soldier, hey, you better wear that flak vest. 
You better put that on because not for show. I mean, like your life's on the line here. This could be the difference in you live and die. And he says, you put on the armor. So what is it? What do we mean? What kind of what kind of warfare are we then talking about here? It's spiritual. See, that's the difference. Now, outsiders who are not familiar with the Bible could take a cursory glance at hand-picked verses, and they might say, oh, these Christians, these Christians, man, they uh, they fight too much. These Christians are too, they're too feisty. They're like uh, warmongers. Their, their language is militant. I'm very uncomfortable with these Christians in this Bible and the way they talk. Too much militant language. I'm for peace. I'm for love. I'm not for all this. But you see, if they don't know any better, they may miss the context here, which is all of our language. I mean, this is there, there are other holy books, okay, and other religions that have a lot of military language, and it's literal. All right? There are other holy books that do talk about waging war. They may use they use may use other words in their language, like jihad. And and there and by the way, there's some sometimes even they will debate. Oh, is it just spiritual jihad? But there is a significant number, and by significant I mean like you know it's in the millions. There's a significant number of adherents who do think it's literal that it's calling people to literal war. The number of Christians who read those verses from Paul and think that Christians are called to Based on those verses, literal wars for the church. The church has a the church is supposed to raise a physical army and go fight for the kingdom of God in that way. How many people do you think are like that? How many who do you think thinks that? I, I don't I mean I've I haven't met one myself. I've been around, I've met a lot of professing Christians. I haven't met one that thinks that. That, that interprets those verses that way. No, that's not a real not a real belief. Christians universally take this to be spiritual warfare because it's just so obvious that that's what it's talking about here. In that same chapter, Ephesians 6, he says, For we do not... Tell me if this is if this is too complicated. For we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Second Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy Strongholds. What do you mean? What kind of strongholds? Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the war we're in. Now it runs right through all of us because your life is a war. I mean, your Christian life, and some days it feels more like it, doesn't it? Some days you feel like you are under assault. And you are. Because the enemy roams and he's looking to pick off uh, weak soldiers, non-attentive, people who are not vigilant, the non-discerning, people who let their guard down. He's a sniper. 
and and he will draw down on you. He's looking for he's looking for ah, here's somebody wandered out into the field with no armor. Easy pickings. And so it runs right through you. It's your, your daily life. It's individual. It's a warfare. It's a war that you're in. And big picture. Powerful forces at play in high places. What are the high places of our world? The places where the, the, the rich and powerful and influential hold all the cards. They hold all the cards about what information, what, what entertainment looks like, the big decisions that get made. High places. It's the realm of ideas. It's, the, it's, it's all kinds of faulty, wrong, really terrible, dark, and sinful ideas. It's falsehoods. It's lies of every kind. As he says, the, the warfare is to take those false ideas and destroy them. To tear them down and to take those ideas captive to Christ so that they bow to what is true. David became a great king. He became greater and greater, it says, because he answered to a divine king. He was a king. He bowed to another king. And it was that king who was the real commander of the truly invincible armies. And so... We too. Oh, that's a long time ago. But you see, the universal things, you know, they don't change. This is a this is timeless. Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of armies, runs through all the civilizations that have come and gone. And now his church advances on the gates of hell. And his armies are still at war. And we are enlisted. Don't let don't don't let soldiers, including yourself, Get entangled and bogged down in those civilian affairs to take your eye off the ball and get you out of the fight. Because I know a lot of people, and so do you, who were once in the fight, but they're gone. They hit a they hit one of the enemy's roadside bombs. They weren't paying attention. And now where are they now? What's their life like now? That's easy to do. So Vigilance for the church. Because the God of the armies, He fights for you. He fights and He wins. In the end, He wins.